we're doing a series together called Encounters with Jesus, and we're doing that series as we're looking through the, the Gospels of, of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus. We're looking for how people are having encounters with Jesus to see first what they have a firsthand experience with the Lord Jesus. What was that like? And even more importantly than the people is the person of Jesus Christ himself. We're trying to come to terms with the definition of who is Jesus the Messiah? Is, and is the, and the man written in the Bible, is he the one that is in our minds? Is that who we're putting our hope and our trust in? What we think about Jesus is the most important attribute we have about our souls. And want to make sure we're worshiping and serving the one that's in the Bible. So today we're going to look at encounters that Jesus has with power. And authority. Power, we're going to look at encounters of, with Jesus demonstrating his power and his strength. And if you want to see the power and the strength of something, one way to do it is to look at the opponents that he has defeated. You want to see the power and the strength of something, look at the, the opponents that that person has defeated. Case in point, Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston was the heavyweight champion of the world from 1962 to 1964. He was ferocious. And no wonder. He learned boxing in the Missouri State Penitentiary. <laughs> he was a thug. He was unstoppable. His strongest opponent was Patterson. He fought Patterson twice, once to take the title of the world heavyweight champion and then to defend it. They fought two years apart. Total time in the ring, four minutes and 12 seconds. Knocked him out first round both times. Sonny Liston was called the most intimidating fighter of that time. The number one contender, a British fighter, to fight for the championship, his manager said, we're not going to get into the ring with Sonny Liston. As a matter of fact, we don't want to be on the same street with Sonny Liston. The commentator said Sonny Liston was going to ruin boxing because he couldn't lose and no one wanted to fight him. A boxing promoter said, we talk about Mike Tyson and his powerful punches, but Sonny Liston was by far the more ferocious and more indestructible. One of the trainers that actually trained George Foreman and Mike Tyson said that no one punched harder than Sonny Liston. And then in 1964, a 22-year-old 20, young man said, I'll fight him. And he went into the ring with a 7-to-1 odds against him. <laughs> Sonny Liston couldn't answer the seventh ring bell. They threw in the towel. Now, Liston's trainer said that Sonny had come in with an injured shoulder and it was just a bad night for him. So they had a fight for it again a year later. And that fight, that fight gave us the single most iconic photo in boxing. As a matter of fact, in Sports Illustrated had a special edition called The Greatest Sports Photos of a Century. And on that special edition, this was the cover. This is the iconic photo. That's Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. Muhammad Ali would get a new nickname, The Greatest. You want to know how strong and powerful Muhammad Ali is? He put Sonny Liston on his back in 
or I'm sorry, in 2.12 seconds. That's all there was. You know the power and the strength of someone, Jesus, look at the opponents that he defeats. And we're going to look at this in the book of Mark from chapters 4 through 6, and we're going to look at it in the way that Mark writes it. Mark has this style, and, and, and it's intense, and it's fast. He uses the word immediately 41 times in his gospel. That's more than 70% of all of the New Testament using of that word. So he wants us to just go boom, 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 and learn from that breathtaking experience. The other thing that Mark does that the other writers don't do is he uses more passion and more emotion emotional description than the other writers. He understands that facts will give you a certain amount of information, but Mark is an experiential learner. He wants us to feel because truth and meaning are found in the experience, not in just the facts. And so we're going to be looking for how people respond to the various encounters. Because and here's the big point here, we want to see that this is the Jesus that's in the Bible. We're going to look at how he responds. We're going to ha- look at how others, his opponents, respond and those watching around him. Because Jesus comes to this life and the people following him appropriately give him titles that were fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecies like Son of God and Son of Man, uh, Messiah, the Christ. But like many of us often, we use titles and phrases, but we don't fully grasp the depth of what they mean. And so in these stories, the way, especially the way Mark tells them, he says, sure, I'm those things and so much more. He's going to put on graphic displays of the fact that he is the second person in the Godhead. That everything, everything visible and invisible, were created by him and through him because of him. In fact, he holds all things together. That Jesus, in the Bible, is the king of all creation. That's his point. And you can tell the power and the, and the strength of a person by his opponent's that he defeats, and so Jesus is like lining them up. Let's brawl. This is what it's going to look like. In the first encounter, Mark chapter 4, Jesus encounters Poseidon and Zeus, the god of the seas and the god of the storms. There's a fun modern quote that says, every wise man fears three things. A storm at sea, a night without a moon, And the anger of a gentle man. In this story, there'll be two of those three things that wise men fear. This will be a storm at sea at night. They won't see the moon. Jesus and the disciples had just finished a very full day of ministry on the upper west bank of the Sea of Galilee. And they're getting in a boat in the evening. And they're rowing across to go to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And in that evening row, it says, it says, a furious squall broke loose on the boat. Now, a squall is a sudden storm, and Mark wants us to know this one's angry. 
This is a furious squall. This is a localized hurricane that has found its way on the Sea of Galilee. And it says the boat is cracking and sinking. The men are drowning. Meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. It says his head is on a cushion. And so the men are frustrated with their inability to bail fast enough. And so they run to Jesus and they wake him up and they yell at him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care that we're going to drown? And just to make sure we're clear here, these are not a bunch of landlubbers that don't know different. At least four of these men are generational, seasoned fishermen. They know what to fear and when to fear. They're afraid. They're very afraid. So they wake him up and Jesus got up, verse 39, and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and the water was completely calm. There's two observations that are stunning. The first one is like, look at the the words themselves and how they're spoken. Jesus doesn't like roll up his sleeves and get worked up and maybe throw, you know, you shall not pass, doesn't need props. And what's very important here is he, does, he doesn't appeal to an incantation. An incantation is when you, you call upon a higher power. In the name of God, I, you know, stop, storm. Doesn't say any of that. He just says, quiet. He says two words, setting, quiet, still. And <laughs> these are simple commands like you'd give to a rowdy dog. Sit, stay. The second observation that is even more astonishing is this, that the storm, the winds, and the waves obey him like a dog on a shock collar. There's two commands. There's two acts of submission. Zeus, quiet. And all the wind stops. The storm immediately ends. Poseidon, stay. Quiet. And the waves in the middle of a crest go flat. Now it's just glass. An absolute silence. You could hear a kitten purr on the far side of the lake. <laughs> this isn't just someone that's saying, like an Old Testament saint, a prophet or a priest, that they have access to great power, calling upon God to help them. He's not just showing that he has power. Jesus in this is demonstrating that he is the power. Anything and everything with power is merely on loan from Jesus. This is the power that only God has, and that's the demonstration here. And this is a firsthand response from those men that are in the boat and how They were reacting. Verse 41 says, and they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. (laughs) Before, they're yelling and screaming because it's so loud with the wind and the waves. The boat is being swamped. They're going to drown. After, it's perfectly calm. It's still and peacefully quiet, and now they're terrified. They were afraid, and now they're terrified. 
Wow. I mean, what were, by the way, what were they expecting? They wake Jesus up and they say, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? I think there's only two, like, I guess, points of expectation there. Teacher, don't you care? Like, teacher, teach us out of this thing. Or, I don't know, say something encouraging like teachers do. Or teachers, don't you care? Maybe that was what it was. The counseling attributes of Jesus. Don't you care that we're all going to die? How about some hugs before we go down? I think what they were saying was, like, Jesus, do something. And then Jesus stands up and says, sit, stay. And the men were, well, that's not what we were thinking about something. We were, we were afraid in the storm, and now we're terrified Man, we missed that storm. Man, we missed that storm. That's not what we had in mind. What you think about Jesus is the very most important attribute of your soul. Is this the Jesus <laughs> that you have in your mind when you think about him? This kind of power and this kind of authority? Or is it a Jesus that's merely, he's merely a teacher. He has great wisdom. He is a great teacher, or a healer, that we go to Jesus because we want tranquility within our souls and in our bodies. We want him to make us feel good in some way. He wants to tuck us in. Jesus, tuck me in bed when I've had a particularly bad day. This one is so much more. These men have been following him for maybe years, and they didn't know this about Jesus, that he is the king of all of creation. And he tells it what to do. There's something profound in this Jesus. Because he attracts us to him. And then the closer we get, the brighter he becomes. And we're repelled by that. He is amazing and causes us to wander into, into knowing him. And then we see that and we're terrified and fear ourselves running away. What do you do when, when your greatest fear is towards something that's good? <laughs> C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job trying to explain this kind of new fear in the space trilogy where he writes, he writes uh, it's kind of strange, Lewis writes himself into the story. C.S. Lewis is in the, in the story. It's in the, and he, in this one particular scene, he finds himself standing before an archangel and he's paralyzed in fear. But it's a different kind of fear. Look what he writes. He goes, and my fear was from another kind. Because I, I felt for sure that this was something that was good. And I didn't know that goodness could cause such a response. And this was a very terrible experience. Because as long as what you're afraid of is something evil, you can still hope for good to come and rescue you. But what happens when you suppose that, and you're struggling with something that's good, and it's more dreadful? How very, how, what happens when the very comforter is the thing that makes you uncomfortable? Then indeed there is no rescue possible. The last card has been played. The strongest opponent in the imagination of these sailors and their families is that they would be in a storm at sea at night. A ferocious, it says a ferocious squall. 
And that was fearful. But when Jesus said quiet and still, they were terrorized. This is how Paul summarizes the nature of Jesus. In the context of this story, it makes sense. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. (laughs) All things hold together. Creation does what it's told. Well, in the story, they finish and they get to the other side, and now they're in Gentile country. This, this is hostile territory. Or, as Jesus would say, it's an away game. And in this one, Jesus has an encounter with the underworld. It's a man that's absolutely possessed by thousands of demons. This is Mark's longest and most vivid story that he describes in all of his Gospels. And it is also the single most detailed description of any account in all of the Bible of a demonic exorcism. And so that, like, we're not going to show a video for this so that we can all sleep tonight. Some of you are like, are you going to do the video? No, I'm not doing the video. Let me tell you what this, this man is like. This is, this is where Mark uses all of his descriptive terms in, this, in his longest story of his narrative of, of the life of Jesus. Here's a man that is an unman. He, is, he is, is consumed with evil spirits. He lives amongst the tombs where he's most comfortable with carcasses and a smell of death. He is unhuman. He's torn off all his clothes. He runs around naked. He flops around in the campfires that men build for him. He's getting progressively stronger, it says, because the passage says that they were no longer able to bind him and hold him. They, were no, they started off and they could because they chained him, legs and hands. And then he, then he grew in strength and he was tearing the chains, it says, tearing the chains loose. All day, all night, he would groan and scream and howl like a beast. He'd find sharp rocks and gash and gnash himself. That is the opposition. Here's what happens. And when this man saw Jesus at a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Who's doing the incantations now? Who's calling on God for help? Demons are calling on God for help. Jesus asked him, what's your name? My name is Legion, for I am many. This man is the boogeyman's boogeyman. A legion is the largest long-term deployment in the military army. It's when they went somewhere and they were planning on staying. They're setting up a base. Five to 6,000 infantry alone. It's no wonder they can't hold him down any longer and he's tearing through the chains. You know the strength of a hero? Look at his opponents. (laughs) When we look at this combat, listen for this word because it's used multiple times. Here's the word of the day. It's beg. 
And in verse 10 it says, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out, not to send him out of the area. The demon man sees a large herd of pigs and it says he begged again, send us, just tell us what to do, order us, we'll follow your orders. He said, Allow us, permit us, give us permission and we'll, we'll do whatever you tell us. Mark says he was, they were given permission. I think Matthew says the exact word, he says, go. Just go. And those demons found that large herd of pigs, 2,000 in number. Those pigs ran as fast as they could off a jagged edge cliff into the Sea of Galilee and they drowned. Anybody else? The herdsmen ran into town and told them what had happened. And this is where it gets super creepy. Because the mayor and all the people come running and that's when they see the demon man. Look what it says in verse 15. Cover your ears for the kids. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. Look, look what they saw. He was sitting there, dressed. He was in his right mind. And they were afraid. That's when the townspeople became terrorized. They see him there. He's he's sitting there. He has all his clothes on. He's even in his right mind. He's got one of these little Stanley cups that are pink, and he goes, hey, what's up? (laughs) And here's what they did. Look what the people did. And then the people begged. Now look who's begging. And the people began to beg Jesus, beg with Jesus to leave their region. We need help controlling this demon-possessed man. Well, not that much help. We were thinking bigger chains or something. Not this go. We didn't expect you to say go. They're saying, you know, when this guy was running around naked, howling like a wolf, cutting himself, flopping in the fires, living amongst the carcasses, we missed that guy. Because then we were only afraid, and now we don't know what to do with you. This is the Jesus who's king of, over all of creation. Here's what Paul said in a different way. And the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven, ha, huh, spiritual things, heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. These are all ranks of the spirit world, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been, have been created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Boom, boom, boom. These stories are coming at us so fast, we're hard, having a hard time catching our breath. And our third opponent, Jesus encounters the grim reaper, the banshee, death, second law of thermodynamics, the undisputed, undefeated, killer of all things that have ever lived here we go (laughs) they take the boat back from that last miracle and they end up back uh, base camp on the northwest side of the sea of galilee they're getting off the boat and jarius who is a leader and a godly man uh, he's a leader in the uh, in the jewish community there in the synagogue and his daughter is ill and so he runs to jesus falls face down and begs Jesus, 
it begs Jesus, please come and heal my daughter. She's sick unto death. Any moment now, it's hospice time for her. Please just come. And Jesus sees that and he sees he's a man of faith and is on his way there. And then one of Jairus' friends that had been tending his 12-year-old daughter races to his side and says, she's gone. It's too late. Don't bother the teacher. Jesus overhears that, it says in verse 36. Overhearing what they had said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, you just believe. They continue on to Jairus' house, and Mark notes that there was screaming and crying loudly. Crying and wailing loudly, of course. This beautiful child has passed away. So Jesus dismisses everyone except the, the mother and the father and Peter, James, and John to be witnesses. And this is what he does. And he took her by the hand and he said to her, little girl, I say to you, rise. No incantation. No call for a superpower because Jesus is the power. And then Mark, here's one of his 41 times, immediately she stood up and began walking around. And here's the response. At this they were completely astonished, overcome with amazement. <laughs> Death obeys. Death obeys right away, all the way. He says, one word, rise, and death releases his grip and says, sorry, sorry, grim weep. the grim reaper here is begging to be let go like, those, like that legion of demons. Don't judge us now. Hey, hey, Jesus, can I, can I hold on to my sting? This is, the sting of death is all I have. And Jesus says, sure, but not for much longer. We should do breakfast early. Resurrection Sunday, bring your sting. No one will fear you again. He conquers death. <laughs> Do you understand the meaning of what Mark's trying to show us here? Not just with the, the facts that are being portrayed, but look, look at the way he's telling this message. He's lining up the most powerful, fearful thing that we can imagine, and then in a single syllable, soft words, Jesus conquers them by ordering them. Sit, stay, go, rise. And the response? People are terrified. <laughs> They're frightened. They're overcome with amazement. That's what happens when Jesus shows up. Here's the fourth story. And it's the most frightening for me. This is Jesus encountering his homies. This is his playground friends. This is the village where he grew up. Everybody knew him as a kid. And he goes to that village and son turns out it's going to be on the Sabbath. And so they ask him to teach. Hey, he's back. And in verse 2 it says, And on the Sabbath came and he began to teach in the synagogue where he grew up. And many of them heard him, they were amazed. There's that word again. And then they say, where, where, did he, where did this man get these things? What, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And what about these remarkable miracles they're performing? Now, don't think too highly of their responses like, hey, that's a great sermon. It's more like, mm, don't we? I thought we knew you when. And that's, I'm not making this up. Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? 
hey, honey, don't we have a, like a dining room set from this guy? And then he says, isn't this Mary's son? And aren't his brothers right here? There's, there's James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. We were on a soccer team with him. He was pretty good as a goalie. Aren't, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, well, except in his own hometown, among his relatives, in his own home. And look at what happens. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Wow. But look who's amazed now. Verse 6, and Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Three dominating victories of the most fearsome enemies, and then this. <laughs> what is this? What happened? Here's what happened familiarity breeds contempt. That's why this scares me, because I can, I can be overly familiar with Jesus. I think I figured him out, and so do these townspeople. I remember when. I know who you are. It, familiarity has Jesus not being able to do ministry and moving on to the next town. I think he does that in people's lives as well. It's scary because I can say, well, this far and no further, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, I'll just go on somewhere else. This is why what you think about Jesus is the most important attribute about the health of your soul. Because you could be a witness to those first three miraculous events and have a Jesus, or you could be part of this last one. There's two responses. You're overwhelmed, or you're bored. So, I mean, obviously the first application here is, do you know this Jesus that's in this Bible? This, this Jesus that attracts us and terrifies us. This, this, this Jesus that we are drawn to because it's our soul's greatest longing. And then the closer we get, the more intimidating he truly becomes. And, and, we're, and we're backing up. We, we, when we read the passages about Jesus, we should be overcome with amazement. Because he is bigger than our storms. He can pacify our fears of the future. He can quail and, and, and he is greater than the fears that we have of, pain, of the pain of just growing old. We should go towards Jesus even if it means being scared by who Jesus truly is. That's this, that's this dilemma. If you're really pursuing who Jesus truly is, you go past your level of intimidation. Again, the brilliance of C.S. Lewis is trying to help us understand this dilemma we're in in, in an easier way to understand in a book called The Silver Chair. It's part of his Chronicles of Narnia series. It's for children, but not. And the, the person of Jesus Christ is played by Aslan. And Aslan is a lion's lion. He's the size of a Clydesdale. He's a, right, very intimidating. And in this, seat, in this story, uh, Jill has just finished some combat, and she's on her way. She's famished. She's going to literally die of dehydration. And she has found herself 
this beautiful brook. You could just tell the water's cold and clean. But between that brook and where she is standing is Aslan. And she has to get by him to get to that brook. This is her introduction to him. And she hears his voice for the first time. Here's what it says in that book. It says, the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It didn't make her any less frightened than she had been before. But it was, look, but it, it made her frightened in a rather different way. As Lewis is talking about in the space trilogy. What happens when the thing that you're afraid of is goodness and, and purity? And it's more fearful. So Aslan says to her, are you thirsty? And she says, unto death. And he said, well, then drink. And then she says, would you mind going away while I do? And then the lion answered her only by looking at her and growling. And then Jill grazed at the motionless bulk and realized that she might as well ask an entire mountain to move for her own convenience. And then Jill said, will you promise not to eat me? (laughs) And he said, I will make no promises. And then she said, now she's seeing the brook and realizing she must get to that, and it's calling her thirst, and it's spiritual. And And she says, do you eat girls? And Aslan says, I have swallowed up girls and boys and men and women, kings, emperors, cities, entire realms, said the lion. He didn't say it as if they were boasting or he was sorry or even that he was angry. He just said it. I I dare not come to drink, Jill said. Well, then you will die of thirst. Oh, dear. I suppose I must go and find another brook. There is no other source of water. So it says, it was the worst thing that she had ever had to do. And she went forward towards the stream and knelt down. And she began scooping up the water into her hands. And it was the coldest and the most refreshing water that she had ever tasted. And she didn't need to drink much, for it quenched her thirst all at once. That's her salvation. That's the picture that we're to see. We have to go closer, but we're afraid because that's who Jesus is. It's attraction, it's amazement, it is accompanied by terror and fright. That kind of power, that's who Jesus really is. If you're comfortable with Jesus, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. If he's predictable, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Somehow in your mind, you have declawed him, defanged him, house trained him, and he is a lap cat. He is not Aslan. If you're sure of who he is and confident about what he would do next, it's not the Jesus in the Bible. If you feel like you could correct him, advise him, that's not him. So how do you do that? Do you want to know this Jesus? Here's what my invitation would be. Join us. We're all in this journey together, and we need each other to get there. Be part of something besides just a big church service. Get involved in other people as we're all becoming like Christ in all of life. We're all trying to guide each other to become like this Jesus. This Jesus. In all aspects of our life. Join us. Join us as we try to go farther up and further in.
First application, and you look at these stories just like they are, is to know him. This, know him. And the second one is to obey him. Is to obey him. Everything in these stories do what they're told. Everything obeys him. Except for those, of course, that took him for granted. And in this series of four stories, what Mark is saying is what Paul declared that Jesus is the second person in the Godhead, that he is the maker and the creator of all things visible and invisible, that he holds all things together. They all belong to him. And so the wind and the waves, they just do what they're told. Quiet, still. Even demons, the invisible, do what they're told. Go. Death itself, banshee, the grim reaper, he obeys, rise. What about you? Do you obey him? Because in the Bible, there's at least five great reasons to obey God. You know, he designed you. Just follow the owner's manual. He loves you. Do what he says. He loves you. It's good for you. (laughs) It's practical. Let's go to pragmatism. We're Americans. It works. This section, these stories, the way Mark's telling them, it's because he's the king of all of creation. This set of passages says, because he said so. Just do it because he said so. Serve others. It works. It does. It'll be good for you. You'll be rewarded. There's another one. You'll be rewarded in heaven. That's all true. This says, just obey. He's the king of the universe. Serve others. Desire to become self-forgetful. Marcus Aurelius says, that's a good thing. Who cares? Never heard of him. In this section, it says, because Jesus said so. I think think King Jesus of all creation would probably say, stop playing games with commands. We work this will to power. That's from Nietzsche. And we bring will to power in our relationships, just making sure that we have the upper hand, we're going to win somehow, and it ruins relationships. And we bring it into our marriages, and the king says, stop it, serve love, turn out, not in. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross. And that means put your ego on a chunk of lumber and nail nail it into death and follow me. And when he says that, he doesn't say because it's good for you. He doesn't say because you'll get rewards in heaven. He doesn't say it because I love you. He just says it. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Parting the Red Sea, the sea will always do what it's told. Hey, I think it'd be a great idea if you prayed for five minutes, four times a week with your significant other. Well, do you know know how busy I am? The ocean will part, but we won't pray with somebody that we love just a few times a week. Because he says so. This Jesus, these stories, should have us 
pleading to be holy. This Jesus, these stories, the king of all creation should have us begging, begging for us to become like Christ in all of life. And so if you want to not just know but learn to obey this king, here's the invitation again. How about join us? Join us. You you need somebody that's over you, that's mentoring you. You need a brother and sister on each side of you to help just go through the journey together. You need to be mentoring someone beneath you and pulling them along. How about we all guide and become guides with other people to become like Christ in all of life? You cannot do it alone. We need to study the Bible together and hear from other people different stories about how King Jesus showed up in their life and it was beautiful and it was frightening. It was wonderful. It was terrorizing. I want that too. We read biographies together. We enjoy each other. We fall and we pick each other up. That's the nature of doing life together. Trying to, and the most important thing about you is how you view Jesus in your soul. That's the Jesus that you hope in, pray for, worship, the Jesus that we heard about today. And my fear is that I have become complacent and contemptuous towards Jesus because I know him so well. Is he safe? <laughs> of course he's not safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's kind. He's the king. Let's know and obey this Aslan, this Jesus together. Okay? Let's do that. Lord, we, uh, we lift up these oh, this remarkable works of art from the book of Mark to help us understand the grasp of your power and your authority. And I acknowledge and confess and repent that I find myself a, one of your villagers that just have figured you out over the years and you've moved on in many ways Lord I'd ask that uh, Grace as a church would find themselves drawn towards your brilliance and repulsed by it but willing to fearfully step closer to you that we would do whatever the next step is to become like Christ in all of life that we would pursue you for who you truly are and enjoy that, the wonder and the splendor. We, have, we are so temporal and you are eternal and we're so finite and you're infinite. So we long to go farther up and further in in this life and in the next life. Never a moment of boredom, but fascination and sometimes fear. So, Lord, we long for you calling us to that and we want to respond as a church and as a single soul we pray this in jesus holy name and all people said amen